Thank you for listening to us, John and Sally from True Crime Investigators UK. John was a police officer for 30 years, most of his service as a detective. Sally was a police officer for 12 years, also served as a detective, then retrained as a lawyer and practised in the criminal courts. We're now retired, but we still review and investigate criminal cases, some of which are solved, some remain undetected and we bring those to you through our podcast. We're an interview and discussion-based podcast and speak to individuals who have an involvement in the case we are reviewing. We also call on our experience and discuss issues arising from a case. For additional information, including maps and photographs, visit our website, truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk and please remember to follow the show on your podcast app. That way you'll know whenever a new episode or series is released. Now, for those of you that have listened to our podcast before, you'll know that we don't exploit and we don't sensationalise a case. We just report the facts to you. But it's fair to say that some stories, some cases are sensational just in the very telling of them. So we're going to take you back to Wednesday, the 12th of January, 1977. The weather is typical January, wintry weather. And there's a taxi taking a prisoner from the prison in Leicester to the magistrate's court in Chesterfield. Now, listening to that, John, some people might be quite shocked that a remand prisoner is being taken by taxi. But back in the 70s, that wasn't unusual, was it? No, no, it uh, was quite the norm for single prisoners who were escorted from the prison to the magistrate's court would be taken by a contracted taxi service and I'm sure that they would have been vetted and uh, the drivers vetted to make sure that they were suitable for that role but there was that many prisoners going up and down the country to the large number of magistrates courts that we had at the time and I'm sure in our research we saw the figure that there was about 24,000 taxi journeys taken in about a year doing exactly the same as what happened on this day so it was quite normal if there was more than one prisoner and escorts to the magistrates would probably be done in what we'd know as a prison van but this was quite the normal procedure at the time yeah so let's think about this particular prisoner if we think about who's in the taxi we've got david reynolds he was the taxi driver so obviously he was sat in the driver's seat in the front passenger seat was the senior of the two prison officers which was Don Sprintall and sat in the back at the back of Don was the prisoner himself and he was handcuffed to the second prison officer who was Ken Simmons so Ken would be sat behind the taxi driver so that's the makeup of how this journey progressed now I keep saying don't I John much to your annoyance that I keep saying they travelled down the M1 but they didn't they travelled up the M1 because if you travel from Leicester to Chesterfield you're on the northbound carriageway so actually it'd be correct to say they went up the M1 now they came off on the slip road of Junction 29 which is the nearest one to get to Chesterfield and it's at that point as they're coming up the slip road that this prisoner produces a knife reaches forward and strikes a blow across the back of the neck of Don Sprintall who sat in front of him once he's done that he quickly whips round and he slashes the throat of Ken Simmons the other prison officer and in an attempt to try and ward off 
any further attack. Ken is also injured in his thumb and in his palm. Now, just by the telling of those few sentences, we can already tell that this is somewhat of a dramatic instance. So the two obvious questions, who was the prisoner and why was he in custody? Why was he on remand? Well, I can tell you the prisoner was William Thomas Hughes and he was a 31 year old and he was charged with two very serious offences. One of grievous bodily harm to a young man and the second charge was that of rape to that young man's girlfriend. And these offences happened on the 21st of August 1976. Now we spoke to Chris McCarthy and he was a police officer who was on duty that night that these offences were committed. Yeah, in the late part of 76, I was still in, in uniform, having started at Chesterfield in November 71, just prior to going on to Chesterfield CID in, I think it was the November time. So I was a uniform PC throughout 76, but went on to Chesterfield CID at the end of 76. Billy Hughes, as we know, was on remand for some serious offences. What knowledge do you have of those offences? Well, I, I remember distinctly being on duty on nights in the winter of 76. I can't say exactly what the dates were, but I called at the police station and I just happened to be in the charge office at the front of the building when a young man entered the building covered in blood, saying that his girlfriend had gone missing. He stated they'd been to a nightclub in Chesterfield Town Centre and had been followed back to Boythorpe on foot when he had been attacked by a man with a brick. He was knocked unconscious, he's come round and discovered that she's missing. So he's made his way directly to the police station. As I say, he was covered in blood when he got there, and he raised the alarm and then numerous officers left the police station to look for his girlfriend. You say he was covered in blood. How did he present to you? Well, totally in shock and very wobbly, unsteady on his feet. He was, when I say covered in blood, he was scarlet from head to toe virtually with his own blood. And he was only a young man at the time. I wouldn't recall now exactly, but I would say possibly early 20s, very early 20s. And very sensible. It was obvious that he was telling the truth, plus the fact that he's covered in the blood anyway. So, yes, he was taken very seriously and reacted accordingly. And what injuries did he have? Do you know, I can't remember other than he had a wound to the back of his head, but I don't remember the rest of his wounds. And as a result of him reporting that when he came round from being unconscious, his, his girlfriend was no longer with him, what happened after then? Well, we went straight out in different panda cars from the police station, quickly found her in actual fact, and I think it, she was found in the toilets. I thought it was a telephone kiosk initially, but I think it was the toilets at the front of Queen's Park. Then she gave the full story as to what had happened and said that she'd been raped by a man. And so began the police investigation into the serious wounding to the young man and the rape to the young lady. That's correct. Um, CRD took on the uh, investigation. Well, John, just imagine Chris McCarthy's uh, position. He's on duty at the police station, as, as we've heard, when this blooded male, and I believe he was 21 years of age, comes into the police station, says he's been attacked, his girlfriend's missing, so you've got to rally the troops 
And fortunately, the young lady, who I believe was 20 years of age, was found very, very quickly. And as Chris said, so that starts off the investigation. But where would that investigation start? Well, for people like us who've been in the CRD for years, off and on over our careers, these type of incidents, although this one was particularly horrific and quite a, a rare event in that not only was the girl raped but her boyfriend was savagely attacked as Chris describes. There is a sort of a a set procedure in these type of events that swing into action. The uniform staff as Chris was at the time and his colleagues and the supervision that would be on, there'd be an inspector at least at Chesterfield on duty and every shift. Everybody would then pull together, secure the scenes where this took place but primarily at that time is obviously the welfare of the people involved. Are they injured? Do they need medical attention? If that's the case, that would be the priority. Because the role of the police, although people generally don't appreciate it, is the preservation of life. That is the most important. Top of the list. Top of the list. The investigation comes after that. So preservation of life, these people were clearly badly injured, traumatised, And you can only imagine what that scene must have been, what Chris witnessed. So that would be the priority first. Then, after that, the police procedure kicks in, the preservation of the scene. And if there wasn't any CID on duty, bearing in mind this was the early hours of the morning, the procedure is that the senior CID officer in charge would be on call and he'd be contacted and it was down to him then to progress the investigation with the uniformed staff and he would call out staff of his own, the CID staff who covered Chesterfield and there's this sort of big machine now starts to work. And we've had many a call out in the middle of the night haven't we? Yes I mean that was our career wasn't it that even though you weren't on duty you were always available for call out and that was part of the job that's the role that you took on you know if you didn't like that type of lifestyle well you didn't go in the CID or you came out of it you know but we on some occasions we've both been called out in the middle of the night for different events and that's and and that's the way it is and of course the priority is to move as quick as possible but under supervision of the events to get the best evidence you can to progress the inquiry and bring it to a conclusion so all the CID staff that's what their job is and they do it as a matter of I wouldn't say routine but it's it's a procedure that's well used. And I think in this case they were starting from a blank canvas because neither of those injured parties neither the young man or the young lady knew the offender. Yes initially he was an unknown attacker he'd done what he'd done and disappeared into the night those cases are even harder to proceed with and and detect because if the people involved don't know him in the middle of the night who is this person yeah and so starts your round of enquiries we know that the couple had actually been to jingles nightclub so you would go to jingles nightclub and you would start some enquiries there interviewing people who may have seen them Well, yes, Chesterfield is the second largest town in the county, so it's quite a big town. It's had a very vibrant nightlife in those years. People went to nightclubs. These attacks took place not far from the centre of the town. The inquiries would, in the cold light of day, would be looked at. Where's the priorities to go to? Clearly, if we could have established where they were on the night, Jingles Nightclub, inquiries would be made and a vast amount of 
police work needs to be done to try and piece together what's actually happened and ultimately find the offender. So, of course, 1976 was pre-the-DNA era, but forensics were still an important part of any inquiry. I mean, the, the set procedure we've mentioned it covers preserving the scene for examination by scene of crime officers, as we call them in the day. The scene can reveal vital forensic evidence, footprints, hair samples, blood. Although there wasn't DNA, there was other procedures you could use. And of course, subsequently, any clothing that was recovered would be forensically examined to help prove who's done this crime. So even though it wasn't advanced as it is today, it was still a vital part. It, it was a tool to rule people in or rule people out, wasn't it? Yes. Most major crimes, at some stage, there is forensic input that bolsters the case and helps to prove who has done or hasn't the crime. And there was no different now to in 76. That's what the mindset was and that's what we needed to do. And the young lady actually put together a photo fit because she'd spent some considerable time, or albeit it had been a traumatic time that she'd, she'd spent with the offender. She had spent enough time to be able to give the police a good description and as a result of giving that description, she then went on to provide a photo fit identification. And photo fits today aren't what they were back in the 70s, are they? No, then it was quite a, a crude but effective process where the victim was shown multiple photographs of various parts of a person's head and body and clothing. So you had physical photographs of hairstyles and physical photographs of colours of hair and physical photographs of eyes and physical photographs of the shape of the face and their mouth, and but all as individual characteristics on their face. And obviously then the trained, because there were people trained in using these uh, type of photo fit kits, they would build up by process of elimination, what the person, the offender, looked like. And that could take some considerable time and swapping them round till the, the victim was happier that that was more resembling the offender until in the end, when it's finished, it's as good as you can get. And we know that some people are very, very good at recognising people and describing people and some people aren't. So it's a starting point, but we always used to bear in mind that some are better than others. And so once that photo fit had been put together and the media circulated it, I mean, there was a there was a big local media because it was a serious event. But that photo fit became pivotal in the inquiry, didn't it? And we went to speak to John Field about his initial involvement in that inquiry. And although John was keen to speak to us and tell us of his involvement... He wasn't a well man at the time that we spoke to him. He was happy to give us a, a chat, wasn't he? Absolutely, and, and I think you can tell by his voice on the recording that he was, you know, pleased to take part in this enquiry that we were doing and was willing to take part, even though we knew he was ill, but he was, he was more than happy to do it. And, of course, sadly, since we did the interview, he's no longer with us, so we were very grateful for him to, to take the time and trouble to speak to us when he did. And this is what he had to say. So I was just a, a young D.O. You were a detective constable stationed at Chesterfield. Chesterfield. Yeah, Chesterfield West, as it was called, yeah. When were you first aware of Billy Hughes? Well, the assault and the rape had happened and we were out on enquiries 
I spent days interviewing a lot of people who had been to a party at the top of Boythorpe Road and had passed the scene on that night going home from the party. And uh, I spent days and days interviewing these people if they'd seen anything and what have you. Nothing had come out of that. And then one night, I was in the CID office at Chesterfield with my mate Brian Bunting. The DI came out of his office, Frank Hume, and he got a piece of paper in one hand and his King Edward in the other, smoking away. And he gave, he shouted me and bumped over and said, go and sort that out. And we'll have got this message, telephone message for. And on it, he said, anonymous telephone call. There is a man called Billy who's living with a guy called Tony, who we all knew was a scrap metal man, and he looks like he photo fit. That's all we'd got at that time. And this was a photo fit for an incident that this, happened in, in August of 76. Yeah, this, this was a photo fit of the girl who had been raped and put together, which obviously had been put in the newspapers and things like that, and people had seen it, and that's how somebody had rung in to the police station and said, you know, there's a guy, this guy called Billy, lives at this address. So we got the, the, the actions, as we call them, the messages, photo fit, clipboard, into the car, and off we go to Boythorpe Crescent, which is five, ten minutes away from police station. And we get up there and I go and knock at the door and Tony comes to the door and we both knew him and he knew us, he knew what we were. And it was like, what do you want me for now? It was not you, you've come, we've come to see. And I said to him, is there a guy living with living here called Billy? He says, yeah, why? I says, is he in? And he said, yeah, he's in. Well, come and talk to him. Anyway, she had a belly into house. And uh, this little guy comes at the door. And I looked at him. And I looked at the photo fit. And I looked at Bun. And Bun looked at me. And we looked back again. And I couldn't believe it. It was like looking in a mirror. Now, bearing in mind, in the 1970s, photo fits were not what they are today. No, no. They were cobbled up from these big boxes of different... You used to have strips with eyes on and strips with noses on. Yeah, I've still got a box. And then lips. Yeah, yeah, we've got a box. So would you come down to the police station and help us with our inquiries into an an assault? And uh, it was very, very amenable. Not a problem. There you go. He came out of the house. He didn't have to fetch anything or this, that and the other. And we we were in my car, which old Marina Coupe, two-door. So... Billy gets in the back. I'm driving, obviously, once in the passenger seat, and off we go down Boythorpe Road. Did you know anything about Billy Hughes? Knew nothing about, his, about him whatsoever. Nothing at all. No idea. He, he was, as far as I was concerned, he was just a man on the street. Right. I hadn't got a clue. No idea whatsoever. We didn't even know his name was Billy Hughes. All we knew his name was Billy. Right. And it was only because he looked like the photo fit that he came with us. Yeah. So off we go down, try to pop off down Boythorpe Road. And all three of us smoked. And we hadn't got any cigarettes between us, we realised. So we stop on West Bars Island outside Threshers, off licence, and Bunt gets out of the car and goes and fetches some cigarettes for us all. We're well, just chit-chatting. Might be. Then off we poggle again, down Beatwell Street, into the back backyard of the Nick. And to get into the CID office, because in those days you didn't go through into a charge room or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, actually, he wasn't under arrest. He was just coming to, you know... Assist with your inquiries. So there's a big fire escape that went into the what you call it, and up we go up the fire escape. And it's a it was a massive office, the main office, about as long as our garden here, quite a long one. And there were quite a few DOs in at the time, some doing paperwork and some having the sandwich and this, that and the other. And I can remember because I was in front, Billy was in the middle, 
and Bunt was at the back. And I saw everybody's face, the jaws dropped as we walked into the office. And yeah, because I knew what they were thinking. My God, he does look like him, doesn't he? I took him into a, uh, an interview room at the top of the office and, and stayed with him. Bunt obviously went and uh, spoke to Gaffer, this, that and the other. The Gaffer came, Frank Hume, and looked at him and then shut the door and went away. Now, what happened in the office after that, I don't know personally, because for the next four hours, I am sat in this room with Billy, just chatting away. The door opened and somebody said, just keep, just keep yakking, we'll bring you a cup of tea, and this, that, and the other, we'll, we'll not be long. <laughs> not be long. I quickly found out what not to talk to Billy about, because his face and his eyes changed. If you started talking about where he came from, his family, children, or anything like that, he just, his eyes just glazed, went, and I'm thinking, uh, right, yeah, not that daft, brother. I'll, uh, we'll forget that. We'll sit and talk about something else. So he didn't want to talk about his he personal life He didn't want to talk anything all. about his personal life whatsoever. And I wasn't going to push it at that time. No. So we just chit-chatted about football and this, that and the other and general things. And I can't really remember what. But at one time, the door opened. And into the room, barely it's only a small room, walked the superintendent, Mr Holland, to come to have a look. And he introduced himself and he says, I understand your name's Billy, this, that and the other. And where do you come from? And I'm behind him, I'm going like this, shaking my head. Please do not go down this line. And he obviously knew something was amiss, the Miss Dog. And I give him his due. He just turned around and he went out. So then we get on again. We, we get back. Just general chit chat. So it was about four hours. Bunk came and he says, we're going to take him down for interview. I said, oh, brilliant. That were it then. Young John had his nose pushed out, <laughs> being the young D.O. He didn't get in on the interview. And that was really the last time I saw him. You weren't, weren't involved in the interview no, or the rest no, of the inquiry? No. Well, I was involved in the rest of the inquiry. You know, evidence gathering, statement taking, things like that. So I find that really interesting, John, listening to the language that... John Field uses because he refers to detectives as DOs, detective officers. Now we know that we and everybody else that we know within the police refers to detectives as DCs, detective constables, but it is an unusual thing specific to Chesterfield Division. I mean my dad was a a police officer in Chesterfield Division and he's nearly 90 now, and he still talks about the people that he served with as being DOs. And we don't know of anywhere else in the country that that's a term, do we? No, I've never heard of it anywhere else, although we can be proven wrong, I suppose. Yeah, so going back to Billy himself then, he was subsequently interviewed by the police and a decision was made to charge him with grievous bodily harm, uh, the attack on the young man, and also rape of the young lady and we know that it was Billy Hughes that was responsible for these two incidents because he admitted yes that was me yes I was there and yes I did hit the young man with the brick on the head but I was acting in self-defense so that was going to be the issue 
for trial. And as far as the young lady was concerned, he was saying, yes, I did have sex with that young lady, but it was consensual sex. So that was going to be the issue in relation to that charge once he got to trial at Crown Court. I think he must have known that the police had got quite a good case against him. They'd recovered clothing, hadn't they, and footwear that the lady had described he was wearing. And the case was obviously quite strong and he and he was cunning enough, I think, to realise that his only hope was to try and give an excuse as to why he's done it. And yeah. that is that he used force on the man because of defending himself and sex with the woman, which was consensual for the court to ultimately decide who was right and who was wrong but he must have sat there and thought that's that's his best hope of justifying his actions yeah so he was then put before Chesterfield Magistrates Court early in September and they decided that he should be remanded in custody hence the reason that he went off to the prison in Leicester yeah the magistrates when he first appeared, obviously he wouldn't deal with it there and then and decided that because of the seriousness, he went into prison custody on remand. And obviously, these are such serious matters that they're not going to be dealt with by the Magistrates Court. They're going to be dealt with by the Crown Court. But before you get to the Crown Court, you have a number of appearances at the Magistrates Court so that the magistrates can see that the case is progressing and it's it's done with all due diligence and it's going to be dealt with in a, a timely fashion. And of course, on those appearances, these days, you would have a video appearance so you wouldn't have the need to physically transport a prisoner to the court. But in those days, what they did was they had to physically take him to the court so that he could hear what was being said in the court about his case. I mean, at that time, computers weren't even available, were they? So all this technology we use today, there was no other way than physically taking somebody to the court. And if the court wanted to ask any questions or his defence did, that was the opportunity. And that was the standard practice. But as we all know it gave an opportunity for any escape attempt yeah because in traveling regularly and like every two weeks between the beginning of september and the 12th of january uh, the following year those regular journeys from the prison in leicester to the court in chesterfield has given him an opportunity to get a familiarity with that route So he's obviously identified where is the ideal spot to attack those two prison officers in the way that we heard right at the beginning of the podcast. And he waited until he got to Junction 29 and attacked the two officers on the slip road and subsequently forced the driver then to drive on to where he wanted them to end up. I mean, he must have thought about a means of escape and that was his option that he chose And you and I know that somebody charged with a serious assault on the male and the rape of the uh, young lady, if he was subsequently convicted, he would go to prison for a very long time, wouldn't he? Yes, yeah. You know, 10 plus years easily, I would have thought. I mean, although very few people get it, but rape has a a life sentence, doesn't it? They can sentence you to life. Yeah, potentially, yeah. So he knew that his future was bleak and took the opportunity to plan an escape, which he subsequently did. Yeah, and after attacking the two officers and forcing David Reynolds, the taxi driver, to drive on, he drives on through Chesterfield and we know that he subsequently deposits the two prison officers, injured as they were, and also the taxi driver 
by the side of the road in order that he can drive off in the taxi so he's got a means of escape. I mean, the prison officers must have been in shocked state. I mean, badly injured, as we know. The taxi driver must have been have eyes like saucers because he must have been terrified. And I'm sure Billy Hughes thought the best thing to do is to, to get rid of them out of the car and make his own way and, and look after himself and leave them behind. So where does the next part of this podcast take us? And I'll tell you what I'm thinking, John. I'm thinking that we get in the car and we, we look at the route that he took or we think that he took and just drive the route and see what the uh, lie of the land's like. Yeah, it'd be an interesting exercise because from our basic knowledge of where he, he was heading, clearly again used his head, didn't he, to keep away from main roads. And it'd be interesting to follow the route and uh, observe what we do. Yeah, so off we go. You're driving. Here we are on the A632, and that's the main road that goes out of Chesterfield towards Matlock. And we do know for a fact that they travelled from the prison in Leicester. They got onto the M1, they came down the M1, and came off at Junction 29. And that is where, the on the slip road, that Billy Hughes attacked the two prison officers and then demanded that Reynolds, the taxi driver, drive wherever he said. So we don't know the exact route through town because there are a couple of ways that he could have that he could have come from the direction of the motorway, but we do know that he ended up on this road, don't we? We do, and it's climbing out of Chesterfield, we're going higher and higher up onto the moor and in January this would have been quite a dicey road and as the further and higher you get, the worse the snow was. Yeah, and we've come out of those sort of residential area and we're just going now past the odd house here and there, but we are climbing up higher and higher, aren't we? Yeah, quite deep as we get further in and you climb for a good mile or more, I'd estimate, before you get to the plateau at the top where we will change direction. And I think it's fair to say that, I mean, we know this area really well, I think it's fair to say that the weather can be doing one thing in Chesterfield and it can be completely different up here heading toward the moors. Yeah, you'd be, I'm sure it'd be hundreds of feet higher than Chesterfield town centre and whether that, he was aware of that or whether it affected him as he got higher he was realising it was dicier than he thought we'll never know of course but it will be misleading at the time, I'm sure. So as we go up here, we do know that he stopped the taxi driver driving and made him park up at the side of the road. And he then got the two prison officers and the taxi driver to leave the car and he then actually drove off without them. I mean, that's one thing in itself because the two prison officers were really badly injured and leaving them at the side of the road on such a dreadful day weather-wise was really quite dangerous. Yeah, from what we know and what we've read at the time, they were very lucky that they actually survived the attack, let alone the weather. It was completely reckless with the lives, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And we have identified one or two possible places where we think it might be the point at where he dropped them off. But we're not exactly sure, are we? Unfortunately, we made contact with the person who 
found them on that morning and raised the alarm. We're just turning off the main road towards the Darleydale direction in the direction of the the main road, the A6, which goes from Derbyshire up towards Manchester. And this is the road where the, the Red Lion pub is. Well, you say the Red Lion pub, it's not called the Red Lion anymore, it's called the Peak Edge Hotel. But it's nice that there is a little nod to the fact that it used to be called the Red Lion Public House because actually the restaurant's called the Red Lion. We're just turning into the just, car? Yeah, just turning into the car park because having tracked down Michael Gelavu, who was the person who actually found the prison officers and the taxi driver that day at the side of the road, we've actually traced him and he has agreed to meet us to show us the location where he came across the three people and we've agreed to meet him in the, uh, in the car park of the hotel so if we just hang on here for a while hopefully he'll turn up we'll see when he turns up well there's a car just pulled into the car park just now and i think that's him john let's let's lock the car up and walk over and and meet him so we're here now stood at the side of what is the a632 the road that goes from chesterfield up along to matlock and i'm here with michael Jalavu, and we've just met you, Mike, in the car park of what used to be the Red Lion public house. Can you tell me what was your involvement with, if we say, the Billy Hughes event on that day, Wednesday the 12th of January 1977? Well, I was leaving Chesterfield to go to work at the Red Lion, where I was second chef. As I went up the first Stanley's Road, over the brow of the hill... Onto the second part, I noticed three men stood at the side of the road, one in uniform, handcuffed to a guy in civilians, with another civilian guy next to him, flagging me down. And the guy in the uniform was holding his neck, stemming blood. An escaped prisoner had absconded with their car, and would I help by ringing for the police? So I jumped back in the car, it was only an MG midget, drove to the red line which was just up the road and uh, used a public phone box that we had to call emergency services. Right, so if I just put it into context that where we're stood on that main Chesterfield to Matlock Road, we're actually stood in the gateway of the place where you saw those three men who That's turned out to be the taxi driver and the two prison officers. That's right, yeah. Now as I look round me now, it's really quite quite wooded and we're literally a couple of yards off the road but actually your view of the road from here is not that good how does that compare to back in 1977 well trees and the bushes have overgrown and it looks as if this driveway is not being used for a long time the field looks fallow and it's the same location but as you drive past you wouldn't see it so with the passage of time it's got somewhat it's overgrown. somewhat overgrown yeah. but back in 1977 it was a lot clearer and yeah. and what you saw was quite clearly three men stood on the side of the road like yes. flagging you down yeah three men in distress and you say you saw that one of them was injured the man in uniform what were his injuries, or, or what could you see? I could see a trickle of blood, and he was holding his throat at the side. 
And what was your first impression of the three guys? Well, I found it odd. Too many civilians and a guy in the uniform, but one of them handcuffed to the guy in uniform. There wasn't a lot of exchange in uh, explanation, just they were shouting, the prisoners escaped, can you get help? And that was my main objective. And of course you were in your little midget on your way to, yeah, I couldn't, to work, you couldn't take anybody with you? No, having left them on the side of the road. At that time there wasn't much traffic around, but subsequently I think they were picked up by other people. As you drove off to go just a little way up the road and then turn right? I would say a quarter of a mile and then turn right onto the Dollydale Road. And my place of work was the old the Red Lion. And you went there on your own, you made the phone call, and I think the phone call was actually lodged at 9.56 in the morning. Yeah, that's right. And you didn't come back here. No. You'd reported the matter and assuming that an ambulance and the police were, were on the way and you carried on with your with your work yeah. day. With having such a small car, I, I wouldn't have been of much use. And just thinking about the weather on that day, what do you recall about the weather? The road was fine. It could have been heavy rain. That I'm not sure of. But I know later that day, snow came. And that week, we had snowstorms and it was bad weather for the rest of the week. And I think it's fair to say that the spot where we stood now, down the hill where you go into uh, Walton in Chesterfield and then you, if you went up towards the Red Lion and over onto Beelymore or Eastmore, the weather can be very, very different oh, in a short space of... Yeah, it can turn... Um, I've seen snow drifts up there. But, well, Matlock's been cut off. Kelston's has been cut off. And the Red Lion, we, a couple of nights we couldn't open in severe weather because staff and customers couldn't get there. So really your role that day was pivotal because you identified these three guys at the side of the road and within minutes, having got the story from them, you went off to your place of work, reported the matter. Yeah, and that's all I could really do. I'd just like to thank you for contributing your part of the story because we weren't looking for the spot where the three people were found as being here and I'm so pleased that you came to show us exactly the spot because as you say it's now it's now overgrown and it's not on the same road as the Red Lion pub it's actually the main road the main A632 Chesterfield to to Matlock Road so so thank you for setting the record straight so then back on the road well that was really interesting meeting Michael because where we thought the drop-off point may have been we were we were a good couple of hundred yards out weren't we yeah we were, we're a field gate but the wrong field gate the wrong field gate the um, wrong field yeah the wrong field and it was from what we'd read and researched it clearly showed us the one we thought was the correct one wasn't but Michael's cleared that but, up. Yeah, Michael's put the record straight in relation to that. So we're now continuing on the route that Billy Hughes, having taken the car, is now driving down this road. And again, we've got like the odd farmhouse on either side of the road, but it's it's a very rural area, isn't it? Yeah, and we're sort of now on the plateau so to speak of the climb up going in the general direction of Darley Dale which is towards Matlock in Derbyshire 
And it's strange that it's taking this route, isn't it? We don't know why, of course. No, and I know we've talked about it before, but perhaps he was just heading in the direction of the A6, because the A6 would have taken him back up to the North Manchester area, where he was sort of heading for. He was heading for Lancashire. Or was he? Or was he? Yes. I mean, that's the unknown, isn't it? Why? I mean, as you come up the hill like we've done, if you're aware that Darley Dale is not signpost to the A6, but it is in the general direction of the A6, and at the time, this would be a complete whiteout here. The roads, that we understand, were had been clean, uh, cleared by snow ploughs, but the actual terrain would be just a complete white snow. Unless you knew where you were, you'd easily get lost. It's a bit top of the world, Mar, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yes. I mean, it's not a place that you would come to unless you, you wanted to visit here or you knew it was here. If you were a stranger, which he was, he'd only been here a few weeks or so in Derbyshire. It's not a place you'd find easy, is it? No. But this is certainly the way it went because we know that he ended up in a, a mess at the other end, didn't he? Yeah, and we will get to the spot where where he came to grief with the car and ended up crashing it. So if we can get to that point and then we can have a look round the area and just see what his direction of travel was on foot from, uh, from then on. I mean, the other theory we've discussed, haven't we, Sally, is that, of course, he would have known that where he dumped the three men, the prison officer and the taxi driver, it's a, a fairly busy main road, and they will be found fairly quickly, wouldn't they? And, you know, possibly that's why I put them there, so, he, you know, at least they had a chance of surviving. But the roads he's taking now are off the main routes, aren't they? Police cars wouldn't normally be on these roads. So we had, was that his theory, that is, he'll go across all these little lanes and hillside tracks to avoid being spotted by the police? Yeah, that could be the reason why he's taken this route. I mean, the, there's the odd car about, so in winter there'd be even less. And his chances of being spotted would be slim, I would have thought. So perhaps he was cute enough to do that. That's that's another theory we have, isn't it? Yeah. So this is the right-hand lane. It's not this first one. If we carry on, it's the second junction on your, on your right where he ultimately crashed the car. And we're that high up now. We've come over the brow of the real peak of the moor. And that's one hell of a view, John. On, I mean, it's a bit of a drizzly day, but you can still see, I would think, 15 miles? You're that high oh, up? Oh, gosh, yeah. That yeah, high up, looking, looking across the moor so on a snowbound January day, it would have been quite intimidating, I'd have thought. So here we are, we're coming up to that second junction. And this is where the police found the stolen taxi. So he'd obviously crashed it and then abandoned it. And then must have thought he'd have seen nothing but snow in every direction and nothing to navigate by, would he? That's right. We'll just stop and have a Let's have a wander. Out. Let's have a wander out here. There's nobody here. There's the odd car every now and again, but very little else. Let's have a look. I mean, as we stood side of our vehicle and looked 360 degrees, you can see absolutely nothing except fields, woodland and the hills. Sheep and heather. Sheep and heather. So on a snowbound bad day, it would be like the Arctic, I would suspect. It must have been bleak up here. So from that junction where he's crashed the car, he's obviously keeping off the roads, isn't he? Because we know that he goes in that direction, up towards 
where those trees are and on the edge of that wooded area. So we know that that's the direction he's going. Which is away from the road towards the A6. I mean, we'll get pictures of the, this, won't we, so people can see where we actually sure. are. Obviously, describing it is, is a bit difficult if you're not familiar with the area. So we, we'll get a Google map or something like that as a plan and plot where we are and what we're looking at. And pop that on the website. On the website. But the road which he was going down, which is, I would suspect, the road he wanted to go towards the A6, is now not took that route on foot, has he, from what we know. And we suspect the reason that he hasn't taken it, because now he's on foot, dependent on how quickly the police find the crash vehicle, they're going to know that he's in this area. To carry on walking on foot on the road, he may be discovered fairly quickly. So hence the reason, we suspect, that he's taken to the moor. There's nothing from where we stood until you get to the other side of the moor, approximately three miles across open moorland. Yeah. Is the route we know he took, because we know where he ended up at the other end. But when the police found his vehicle, the, ta the stolen taxi, they could see nothing. There was no footprints in the snow because of the wind and the snow falling, so they couldn't track him. On a better day, they could have no doubt found that there was footprints going across the moor somewhere and give them a clue where he'd gone, but there wasn't. So they would assume, like we would, that he's going downhill still towards the A6 to try and find his way to the uh, main road up towards the northwest of England. And that's what you would think, wouldn't you? It is what you would think. So, do you want to get back in the car and just drive on a bit further and we'll see what the land lie is like and how many houses, farms, residences there are in the area. Because from here it rises, not dramatically, but it still rises to a hill crest and then it drops on the other side and goes down on the other side where we know that he eventually, that's the route he took. So we can't see it from here, we'll have to drive round the, there's a, a road that... Uh, goes round the side of the moor and comes out the other side. Because even at this time of year, John, I am not going to risk that three-mile walk from here across the moors to where we know he gets to. I mean, so it's thick gorse and heather. And it's not an easy walk in the summer when it's all covered with snow and you don't know what, what you're letting yourself in for. So I wonder he survived. I, I, I'm really surprised he, he didn't freeze to death on the moor. I'm really surprised that I'm not freezing to death, actually, because it is a bit chilly. Yeah, and we know, weren't they, that they, they'd asked some... Uh, before the days of police having access to helicopters, they'd asked the military to come and have a look with a helicopter, and even they had to turn back, didn't they? Yeah, the weather was, was just that too bad, bad. That they couldn't fly up here and had to turn back. We know how evil this place can be in winter, and perhaps he didn't. So we're going to have a look the other side. Let's pop back in the car. It's bleak today, isn't it? It is. I mean, I know we're coming towards the end of summer, but, yeah, it's a bit on the chilly side. And we're driving on the road. Obviously, we're not walking across the moor, same as, as he was. But the area where he was walking is off to our left-hand side. It's not barren because it's, it's beautifully clad in, in heather, but it just looks like such a harsh open landscape open, isn't it? yeah absolutely you imagine walking across that today you'd struggle today wouldn't you you know unless you were exceptionally fit with the right boots and equipment because it'll be full of little valleys and 
stuff that will trip you up and we can see it there it'll be just white and he must have come to grief several times before he got to the other side just in just his suit because he's, he was appearing at court I haven't seen a house yet John or a farm on this part of the on this part of the moor no there's nothing other than moorland coming to a junction where we got to turn towards East Moor which is the area that we want again we're still top of the moor and if you look now you can see Chesterfield in the distance off to the right on the horizon there's a couple of farms over there look so yeah I can a, see that now so there's an odd farm but uh, very few and far between yeah there's smoke rising there look on the on the left that just shows you that there's a there's another farm over there you can just get glimpses of the road from Chesterfield to Baslow which is the opposite side of them all so we'll just get somewhere we can pull up and have a get out and have a look so as we stand here John and we look to the left we can see his direction of travel and he's come across all of that moorland and we've left Beely Moor where we were and we're now on to East Moor and if you look over to the right you can see there the back of the Highwayman pub and then you can just see the roofs of the cottages one of which was Pottery Cottage where we know that he ended up. So basically he's just walked and walked and walked and kept going until he's found this area and the, the main road and the dwellings on it and the pub isn't he? There's a few odd scattered farms about. He's kept going till he got to the road I think. Yeah and so starts really the siege of Pottery Cottage and the Mintons and the Morans, the family that resided there. In our next episode, released in a week's time, we'll discuss our thoughts on where our review of this case takes us, considering Billy Hughes' offending and how his desperation takes him to the door of the family home that is Pottery Cottage. We'd like to thank our contributors to this episode. John Field, sadly no longer with us. Michael Jellavu and Chris McCarthy for sharing their thoughts and recollections. From Carrot Cruncher Media... Our editors are Angelica Dabbs and Ed Allen, and our executive producer is Pete Allen. <laughs>